HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Appeal, helping you enjoy your fruits and vegetables at peak freshness and reduce food waste. Learn more at appeal.com. Welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer. Um, today, guess what? We're going to talk about meatpacking. <laughs> I know you never hear about that from me or nothing, but actually, this is a very, very important topic. So although I may seem to have a one-track mind, and I do think a lot about the meat industry, um, the fact is, is that we should all be thinking about the meat industry. And to that end, I have uh, back on the show with me the wonderful Amanda Hitt, who is uh, launched the Government Accountability Project's Food Integrity Campaign, of which she is the director. And um, in that role, she tackles multiple issues that emerge from today's industrial food system. And in addition to that, Amanda serves on the board of directors for the Food Ingredient and Health Research Institute, as well as the International Book Bank. She is a member of both the Maryland and DC State Bar Associations. Amanda, welcome back to the show. It's always great to have you with us. This is like, you've been coming on this show now for 10 years, right? 10 years? It's, has I, it really been that long? I do think it's gotta be at least nine. Um, most definitely, not maybe eight at the least, but certainly the better part of the decade. And many of the times that you have been on the show, uh, we have been talking about line speeds and what used to be called the HIMP program, H-I-M-P, which I forgot to look up what the acronym means. But essentially, it was a it was a um, you know a, a a a pilot program started in the pog industry. Oh, probably in the nineties, right? I mean, we're talking over twenty years with that now. Am I correct uh, with that? He started in poultry, actually. Started in uh. poultry. Uh, piloted mm -hmm. in poultry, uh, and you're right about about over 20 years ago. Yeah, and yeah. they uh, they started a pilot program in pork as well. Yep, yep. So before we get busy with the uh, pork and poultry industry line speeds and all of what's going on there, um, I just want you to remind listeners of what the Food Integrity Campaign does and who uh, the Government Accountability Project is. So starting uh, with government accountability project. So they're a 43-year-old organization. They're a whistleblower protection organization, the nation's leading whistleblower protection organization, one-stop shop for all your whistleblower needs. Um, 
Um, Ten years ago, they started uh, or I started the Food Integrity Campaign, which is a program of Government Accountability Project. And um, we work specifically with whistleblowers in the food and ag industry. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so, as I said before, you and I have spoken uh, often about the efforts of the hog, uh, pork and poultry industries to increase line speeds. Um, so as you just mentioned, it goes back over 20 years with the first uh, the first iteration being an effort to speed up um, the rapidity with which chickens are processed. And just to remind listeners who may not be familiar with this, at the moment, chickens are processed at 145 birds per minute. And what they are seeking to do industry-wide is raise that speed to 175 birds per minute. So um, how, 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 and, and how, how is this rolling out now? Why is it that all of a sudden they're getting these waivers to speed up the, the line speed without actually having it become a sort of industry-wide standard? Well, it is becoming an industry-wide standard. I mean, that that's essentially what the waivers have done. I mean, the waivers uh, kept coming in and, and getting improved to to, a, to the point where it was almost, it, it, it has become the industry standard. And now there's there's a rulemaking to to allow the, um, a new rule for that they're called they call it the um instead of hemp you mentioned earlier that is called the new poultry um inspection system so it's yeah so it's a modernization there i just you know i you know you were saying that 175 so if you think about that 175 birds per minute that's giving a meat inspector a third of a second to inspect a chicken carcass Mm-hmm. A third of a second. So the, if you just look at it that way, you see, well, that's really absurd and we shouldn't be doing that. But then you add on to that, that not only are they increasing line speeds, as you said, which is crazy, mind blowing, mm-hmm. but they're reducing federal inspection. So less inspectors, higher speed. I mean, I don't, I don't know how anybody could look at this and say this is a good idea for uh, the safety of America's poultry. Um, I also don't know how anybody could look at it and, and not say there's, there's the meat industry getting, getting that, you know, sweetheart of a rule, right? I mean, this is such, such an obvious privatization and, and a, and a way around regulation. It's just, it's, it's nuts. Now, during the Obama administration, um, the line speeds were pretty much kept where they had been. Um, and hemp, which which is now the new poultry inspection uh, rule, uh, hemp wasn't really allowed to expand much beyond the seven or eight pork plants that it was in. And I don't remember how many poultry plants were able to implement it. Um, mm-hmm. But they 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 kind of held the they held the line. Um, but suddenly, and this completely went past me. I did not see this happening. But the pork industry has now completely increased its line speed across the board. Um, and I didn't see that even mentioned in the trades, which I normally follow with great assiduity. Um, what, how did that happen? Remind me of what, how did I miss that? Oh, there was this uh, four years that started in 2016, and there was a president that got elected named <laughs> I love you, Amanda. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when that guy got elected, suddenly all regulations were allowed to disappear, I guess. Well, well, it, you know, it, you know, I, I, I joke. It, Trump did not create it. Right. No. But but it did create that perfect deregulatory momentum. 
um, yeah. allowed for that to happen. So it, things happen much, you know, when the uh, when when Obama was in office and, and Vilsack, I mean, their constituents, their their voters were saying no to the line speed increase. Right. So it made it harder for them to to do it. Right. Because the very people that put them into office were saying, you know, the, the mothers of, you know, the the suburban housewife, the whole every sort of voting demographic, environmentalist, animal welfare, worker rights. Those were the people that put Obama into office and it, it yeah. did lead to, to some degree. Right. Like, I think we would, would all agree um, that was not true with Trump. Trump didn't answer to those groups. And so what you saw was a very swift move uh, to get uh, pork deregulated. And so that and that actually happened over the in the in the last four, like prior to covid, the pork increased line speed in the pork industry. I literally missed this completely. I'm ashamed to say. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it just sort of it, it 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 happened. It was, it was that perfect storm um, and things just just worked that way. And uh, and there wasn't a lot of, a lot to stop it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, interestingly enough, it, it, if you're for people who are kind of following this or even know about line speeds, I, I, I suspect they're, you know, well, well, no one's dead yet, you know, so and I, I think you should you should listeners should understand that COVID slowed down the lines because it bottlenecked because of illness. Right. So yes. sometimes these, you know, these plants may have these waivers. So, you know, I was saying, oh, everybody got the waiver or, you know, a large percentage of the of the plants, the poultry plants got that waiver to, to increase line speeds. Um. But they, you know, they haven't been running at those high speeds. Same with the pork plants. Um, so, you know, they they they're not doing all that they could just because they're not staffed up in a way that allows them to do that. So, strangely enough, COVID has kind of not let us really see how potentially um, maybe dangerous. I think is as a safe way, you know, depending on what's getting down, you know, what making its way past the inspectors and past the workers. Right. Um, dangerous food. It, 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 we, we don't really know how bad bad is yet. So um, I, I, not to be gloom and doom, but we still the reason you don't know is because it hasn't really gone into effect because of COVID, I would say. Right. Right. Because they are still operating at a slower rate sure. uh, than they than they were would be under normal circumstances. So but just to just to explain to people what the implications of increasing the line speed are, just to make it clear um, for people who don't follow this or who are just turning into this show, tuning into the show for the first time, uh, wanting to learn a little bit about the meat industry. Um, the line speed is the, the speed at which the animals move uh, past the workers who each one of them uh, makes one motion, uh, one type of motion, one type of cut, and then it moves to the next worker. And this is a very sort of Henry Ford uh, ergonomics type of um, disassembly line, if you will. So uh, when you increase the line speed, what, what, how do you feel that is going to play out in terms of worker safety? As, above and beyond, aside from the fact that they're supposed to be socially distancing uh, these slaughterhouse workers and providing them with PPE and so forth. We'll talk about that in a minute. But but what about just sort of the the repetitive motion industry, the the likelihood of increased um, injury from you know knife cuts or whatever? Um, talk about that, and also the implications for animal welfare, because that must be something uh, to be considered as well. Well, I think I think that they're they're very common sense, right? I mean, you're you're higher speeds with knife wielding workers, right? Uh, who are cheap by jowl? Yeah, <laughs> right. Who that are are packed in shoulder to shoulder. 
Um, you know, and which we, like you said, we'll, we'll get to later, but, but I mean, they're, they're in there in an assembly line, a disassembly line, I guess, a fabric, their fabrication. Um, and they're, they're doing repetitive motions and cuts and, and, you know, we talk about, um, worker injuries. I mean, obviously, you know, the risk of amputation is quite high. It's one of the most dangerous jobs in America, uh, mm-hmm. poultry slaughter specifically, but so all slaughter in general, because of this, again, that there's knives involved. But there's also the repetitive motion. And um, I think most people are aware of carpal tunnel because, you know, like, oh, I have carpal tunnel because I play angry birds too much. And now <laughs> my wrist hurts. But that's that's not what we're talking about here. I mean, the, the type of um, injury is lifelong, a lifetime of pain and a lifetime in injuries that are, are lifelong. So um, I'll give you an example. Um, I had a meat inspector whistleblower tell me a story where she was standing, you know, she was looking at the line and there was a worker next to her and she noticed that the worker was clearly in pain. I mean, she, she knew the worker, you know, she saw her every day and she looked down at the worker and her, the wrist, um, the woman's wrist, the worker's wrist had swollen to the same size of her hand. So it looked like one huge limb. And, and that's, that's carpal tunnel in that environment. So it's, it's, it's a, it's many times more severe. So, you know, saying a musculoskeletal injury, we're looking at a lifetime of pain. So, and then there's amputations and lacerations. So it's, it's not, uh, it's high speed knife wielding is, you know, again, these are just common sense, like, well, someone's going to get hurt. Um, and with the animal welfare, it's it's interesting because you know you you know the USDA is a proponent of this. It's their rule. Uh, it's it's for industry, right? But it's they they they're proponents of it, and and they're like, well, no, you know, animals are not going to be any more hurt or any more severely treated um, in these higher speeds. But that's that's simply not true. I mean, they're, they're, you know, just the transportation alone and, and feeding these plants with animals, like bringing these animals into the plants and, and, and ushering them, getting them in, um, it, you know, the speed and, and the, and the, and the movement and the, and just the size of pigs, for example, I mean, and, um, uh, and, and, you know, just the physical, you know, what it takes to get them moving, and there's mm-hmm. the injuries increase with speed, but but specifically with chickens, um, something happens there that's unique is the shackling. So high speed shackling. So those those uh, the chickens are are turned upside down and their their uh, legs are affixed to shackles. So that's a living bird, and it's highly dangerous for the worker, but it's extremely stressful um, for uh, the animals. And misshackling can lead to all kinds of um, unnecessary and un- unintended pain to that that happens to the chickens. So just, um, it, again, it's common sense. I mean, obviously more animals are going through the process and so that the, the likelihood of injury increases. Mm. It really, it's, it's stunning. And it, and it is stunning that, uh, there has been so little headway in, um, <laughs> in dialing back some of these uh, extraordinarily uh, risky practices. Now, we're going to talk for a minute about uh, PPE and stuff, because besides the uh, impact on worker safety, uh, the increased line speeds do nothing to allow workers to physically separate or distance from each other. And so even though companies like Tyson, uh, Cargill et al., Smithfield, uh, claim to have spent millions of dollars in in PPE, protective uh, you know, personnel gear and so and other measures to safeguard their workers. It's clear that with, with you know 
this one measure of increasing the line speed is going to be implicated in increased rates of disease, COVID-19, you know, cases and deaths, um, not only in the plants, but in the communities at large. And I wondered if you could comment on, um, you know, on that in terms of what you are seeing, especially when we start talking about your whistleblower, your most recent whistleblower case, which we are going to do. (laughs) Good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, I mean, all all of this, all of my information, not all, but I'd say 80 to 90 percent of my information comes straight from the workers and the the insiders themselves. And that's and that is important to understand. I mean, this is not it's not uh, just me sort of this isn't my conjecture, or my academic thoughts around this. This is what I'm told from people who are actually doing this work. My understanding is, I, I mean, every aspect of this was mishandled in, in the slaughter facilities. I mean, and it, and it started with just a general um, not really understanding the gravity of uh, COVID and, and that in, in, in its contagious nature and that it was, um, in fact, a, a very real and, and, and in urgent threat to workers. I mean, that it started there. So uh, nobody reported any actual real concern about protecting workers. So you mentioned the PPE, for example, and the social distancing. Um, that in, it's certainly in the beginning wasn't addressed at all. Right. Uh, and and in fact, I, you know, early reports from workers were you know they were they were crowded together to get their temperature checked. So there was examples of that. I mean, there were photos that yeah, I mean, photos of that. Um, and then, you know, it, it, people don't realize, too, with with workers, you know, uh, many times their family relatives who live with them are also in the plant. So if someone did have a temperature, then that that whole family unit would would not be able to go to work for the quarantine times. I mean, that would be very little or no income coming in for that family. So it was pretty devastating. And, and all of any any effort to contain the virus or limit the spread was born on the workers. So the plants were, I mean, there was even, uh, there's a case, it's not my case, but where they, where the company, I, I believe it was JBS, but I could be mistaken, but it, and um, either way, they, they were making the workers pay for their own COVID tests. No so, way. I mean, yeah. Oh yeah. The, the shifting of the burden to the expendable humans was so obvious. It, it's, it's almost like, I don't know how to like, I don't know how to say it, Katie, except none of this is new. All of the stuff I've been saying, these workers have never been been anything more than an expendable resource. They are disposable like paper plates. And so anything you're seeing with COVID is just an illumination of an existing wrong. So yeah. everything that was going wrong with the treatment of, of people who, let's just, I mean, there are people that mattered less. They're ma- they mattered less. I mean, the, look at the, the, the people who have who have to take these jobs. I mean, a lot of them were talking about a um, immigrant working workforce that you know has language uh, you know obstacles there, um, difficulty finding jobs. Some uh, many plants specifically hired undocumented workers because they knew they could control them more and keep them quiet and keep them under their thumb. And then and then also you know a lot of people who take these these positions. Um, you know, it's the only type time of type of job they can get because they have a felony record. So yeah. they're not going to raise any any concerns or anything. So it's a workforce that was um, cultivated, curated to be quiet and subordinate and subservient. And so 
this is all just the same stuff, different day. Mm-hmm. The only difference is now we're seeing it for real. Uh, we see like we see how little these people are really cared about and cared for. Right. And we also see the implications of not reducing the caseload of COVID-19 in slaughter plants and food processing facilities, because as Leah Douglas from Food and Environment Reporting Network has reported on my show for the last six months, um, there is widespread community uh, dispense, you know, uh, community spread of COVID uh, in any town in which a slaughterhouse or food processing facility exists. So not only are these workers at risk, but the community at large, whether they work in those plants or not, are also increasingly put at risk uh, by these very risky practices of the meat industry, which, you know, I I don't have the immediate figures. Um, I should have looked them up for this, but of course I'm speaking, you know, completely uh, extemporaneously, but, but, you know, know folks that JBS, uh, that Smithfield, both of which are owned by foreign nationals, by the way, but operate with impunity in this country. They do whatever they want. Um, and, and even the American-grown companies like Tyson, Purdue, et al., they are reporting record-breaking profits. Uh, their profits went up. Their exports went way up during COVID, even as they were pretending, uh, as in the case of Tyson, even as they were pretending that the um, disease was going to you know, cause food shortages in the United States. And then it turns out a few months later, we find out that their export profits are, you know, through the roof um, as they, you know, allow all of these, uh, you know, cases to go completely untreated. I want to go back to one more thing about the increased line speed, then we're going to take a break, and then we're going to talk about the case that you're working on right now. Um, But just to to follow up on something, a point that you made earlier, uh, Amanda, about inspection, about the fact that it's one third of a second per bird uh, for an inspector to be able to identify uh, disease, uh, fecal matter on the on the carcass, um, you know, any of the number of other things that would con- be considered contaminants. Talk a little bit about the implications for food and consumer safety uh, that we are going to be seeing as a result of these increased light speeds and the and the paucity of USDA inspectors. Well, I think we'll start where you ended, right? So there, you got to, this thing we start start on is there's already a shortage of USDA inspectors and they're yeah. incredibly um, understaffed. And, and um, a few of my inspectors, I mean, on average, they're, they're working six days a week. Um, the inspector that we'll talk about um, a few minutes, I mean, he's been working seven day weeks. I mean, they're already spread really, really thin. Um, so, you know, they, they're that, that thin line between um, c- coming out of a plant that that treats human beings and animals obviously as uh, you know these externalities and the environment as well like they and they're the one thing that's that's keeping that from your dinner plate mm-hmm. and um, and I, I I should say though you know the I think it, at, at the very least at the very least you're you'll be receiving a, a product of lower quality that you'll be paying the same or more for with high speed slaughter. Pro, the, these these uh, new, new inspection programs, right? Yeah. So that that would be like okay. That's that you know we know that um, now inspectors are no longer uh, you know looking for the cosmetic defects, um, things that are gross maybe. 
but won't kill you. So they've been moved, you know, that's now, that's the, you know, the, the plant workers are supposed to be looking for those. So you can anticipate and expect some deviation in quality just based off of that. I, I would think that's fair to, to, to say. Um, but that on the worst case scenario is that you're looking for sort of a, 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 a degradation of the whole system where quality control is no is is not at a premium and basically the cops are off the beat right and so now you've got a, a privatized meat industry we know uh, from Upton Sinclair in the jungle why we why we need regulation in the meat industry we know that when you give them an inch they take a mile we know that um, even you know in, into the 90s we've had um, incredibly uh, deadly, um, meat, uh, uh, um, pathogens and in, in E. coli with Jack in the box. So we, we know that this isn't ancient history. We know that, um, the meat industry is, is, is primed for that. I mean, it, it, that, that, that they can in fact be producing, um, a lot of dangerous material in the form of, of, of hamburgers, right. Or, or, or pork sure. So, but then you want to, you, you, you want to look at this and, and say, well, Maybe nothing's happening today. Maybe now, if I can see, you know, well, maybe we're trying to we'll make this better for the meat industry. They've been playing ball pretty well. Well, don't forget, not too long ago, um, and, and a lot, a lot of people, visual in a lot of people's, if I just mentioning the Westland Hallmark um, uh, case, largest beef recall in history. Yep. That was a plant that was bulldozing downer cows into your food supply. That food was destined for the school lunch program. That was a, it, that was the biggest recall in history. That's, that's just a few years ago. So yeah. this, this industry is far from, uh, you know, operating without uh, a net, right? I mean, we know that they, re it requires people. I mean, just a totally, just, just a quick little jaunt into this. I mean, Having a meat inspector, which is a third party, overseeing your processes, making sure that the, the the meat is wholesome and safe, also adds a level of authority within the plant that, quite frankly, goes crazy with human rights abuses. I mean, like the, the stuff that we hear about women and, and sexual harassment in these plants, um, one of the more recent um, ice raids what it stemmed from women making sexual harassment and rape claims inside of a poultry plant. And that was in wow. Mississippi. So mm -hmm. meat inspectors add a certain authority, like a governmental presence into what left on its own devices is, is a slaughterhouse. It's actually a slaughterhouse. So you know, I mean, again, best case scenario, you get really gross things in your food. Worst case scenario, you don't see those gross things and they they make their way to your stomach and and, and, to, and, and become, you can get quite sick from them. Or die. Or die. I mean, in the case of beef, and that's, I don't know if you know, I don't, not to cut you off, but Katie, I, I, you do know that they grant, they're, they're looking at granting their first beef uh, high-speed waiver. That should scare the pants off of them. I did not know that. Yes, they did. Yeah. So they are, that inquiry has started. So they've already moved into beef and that's the, that's it. You know, that's the most dangerous food there is when it com comes to, uh, you know, for foodborne pathogens like E. coli 0157, right, which is deadly. And, yeah. and if you're doing that high speed, um, 
gosh, you know. <laughs> and it's hard to imagine at any higher speed than it is. I mean, I am one of probably very few Americans who have been inside a large scale uh, Cargill processing plant, um, which, you know, state of the art, no expense spared. And that's why I got to see it. But these people are processing 4,000 cattle per day in a 16 hour time frame and the next eight hours are used to clean the plant. So, and that is, as I say, absolutely the state of the art plant. So, um, you know, the idea that they're going to, you know, up the ante there and do 6,000 cattle a day, a day people in 16 hours or 8,000 in 16 hours is just breathtaking. So on that note, let us take a very short break and come right back with Amanda Hit. We're going to talk about her latest whistleblower uh, case, a man named Anthony Vallone, uh, who came into her uh, office or practice um, to talk about a specific Tyson plant in Waterloo, uh, Iowa, I guess it is. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with Amanda Hit. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Here at Heritage Radio Network, we care about reducing waste across our food system, from farms to home kitchens. We know that about half of the produce we grow ends up in the trash. We all want to enjoy produce at peak freshness and reduce the amount that gets thrown away. That's where Appeal comes in. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. It's edible invisible, and imitates how peels naturally protect fruits and vegetables. Because here's the thing, less waste doesn't just mean we're throwing less food away. It also means we waste less water, energy, and other resources that go into growing produce. A peel works with nature to reduce waste across the food system, from the farm to the kitchen. Appeal helps us conserve our precious resources to ensure we have fresh food to meet our growing need. Appeal, food gone good. Learn more at appeal.com. The Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture will be hosting their annual Young Farmers and Cooks Conference virtually this year on December 8th through 10th. Programming will cover topics like mutual aid, regional grain economies, land management practices, and much, much more. Whether you're a farmer, cook, butcher, miller, preservationist, processor, or anyone else in the food chain, this conference is for you. Learn more at stonebarncenter.org YFCC. So, again, back to Slaughterhouse. I mean, <laughs> you know, this stuff does really make my blood boil, Amanda. Um so let's talk about your case. So you are you have just taken on a new whistleblower in the pork inspection sector. Tell us about his lawsuit. So Anthony um, Anthony came to us. He was actually a, an, a meat inspector at a high speed plant, one of the pilot plants, and he came forward forward um, with um, with disclosures about uh, dangers inherent. Uh, into the in the high speed plants, but mostly his his concerns were that maybe the the, the data um, was potentially inaccurate the the safety data. Um, so his initial disclosures uh, that's that's how I met Anthony was 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 with that with that disclosure, and he was joined by a woman named Jill Maurer, who's also an inspector at that plant. Um, but Anthony, uh, well, just like so many of us, 
saw that saw the news about a a plant in a Tyson pork plant in Waterloo, Iowa, where this is just so reprehensible. They were they were betting on how many um, workers would get COVID. So it was just it was unbelievable. Um, and um, you know when Anthony read that article, he was incensed. Um, but he was not. I guess he was incensed. Not because this one plant did this, but this has been going on in, in many of the plants that he visits. So he's he he inspects several different plants, and one of the plants that he used to inspect was that very same Waterloo inspect uh, plant. Wow. So he was familiar with it, and um, you know the stories he had to 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 tell about Waterloo were upsetting. I mean, the way he described it um, was he said it was just sort of a um, a, sort of an overcast, a gloominess and a sadness. Um, and that while um, most plants do not treat workers well, there was a higher level of disparagement, higher uh, contempt for the workers at Waterloo is sort of a sort of a viciousness and and also mm. a, 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 a lack of concern about the surrounding community too and the affected populations. Um, people that lived, you know, lived and worked in those plants, just, just a lot of inherent sort of, um, you know, a lot of the, I mean, the problems that we face nationally, but really magnified there and under those circumstances. So he had, he had explained that, but what really bothered him is that um, he didn't think that the American public really understood how these plants reacted to COVID and how they saw workers who got COVID and how, not just, you know, how we talked about their failure to respond quickly at first or do much to mitigate, um, you know, or, or mitigate the, the spread of, of COVID, but, but also, you know, do, by, by, by means of social distancing and PPE and hand washing stations, et cetera. But also the way that they generally um, cast uh, COVID as being kind of, uh, and I, I don't know how another way to say it, it like, a, like an STD, like... <laughs> Uh, really? Was, uh, yeah. He said that they, they sort of joke, like the general feeling in, in these pork plants was that it was basically like an STD, like herpes or mono. It's like something you get when you're dirty. Um, it was just a, it's just a very um, glib and um, disconnected from the human experience. Dehumanizing and, is what I would call it. Exactly. It just, it just, and an, the name, like, oh, like getting mono, you deserve, not kind of like you deserve it, but that's what you get. You know what I mean? Ah, oh, you got, you got the Rona. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so stuff like that, joking like that. And, and he just thought it, you know, he had, he just had enough. And he was like, you know, I just don't think people understand how these workers are just generally disregarded in, in, as a, as a, commonly and as a general rule, but also that the, the, just the, um, lack of, uh, real and genuine concern about disease spread, um, from, from, from the, the plants especially, but then really, and he was also concerned too, that, you know, he's a, he's a, his employer is not the plant. His employer is the USDA and, you know, USDA wasn't doing a lot to really, um, step in Early on, I, I don't know if you know this, but early on with, with COVID, you know, USDA inspectors were also not using PPE. Mm. And, and the reason they were told not to use it 
was because it alarmed and scared the plant workers. I see. (laughs) Yeah. So the main inspector was alerted to the risk. Right. And took precautions to protect him or herself. That would alert the workers. So think about that. You don't want to startle the natives. You know what I mean? So it's just a terrible, um, terrible culture that really, again, it's so it's in such sharp relief when when magnified by by the COVID experience. Absolutely. And has uh, has Anthony? Uh, first of all, has he had to step down from his position at the USDA? Has he suffered any pushback from USDA or retaliation? Or uh, are they kind of letting him go forward with this whistleblower suit? Um, you know what? Ha- I mean, usually your people get retaliated against, as far as I can tell. Well, um, they generally do. Anthony's case was kind of unique. Um, he had become so um, dissatisfied with with these high speed plants, the pilot that he was in. He had actually, before he blew the whistle, he had made um, a move, like he had he had uh, moved to a traditional plant without the high speeds. Mm-hmm. So he that is what he was able to do, which kind of got him out of the spotlight and put him into a place where he was pretty much an unknown. Now he. He was on NBC, so I mean, he he his face was showed. I mean, he was, but you know, I guess it news that news didn't really follow him into his new plant, and so he didn't suffer any overt retaliation. Um, now he's speaking up again, and we have to keep an eye on him, and we'll we will, and we'll monitor him, and 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 should something happen, we'll be there to 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 support him. Mm-hmm. Um, as of yet, no. It, but usually it takes, you know, they, they, they're usually smart enough not to do it right away, uh, right. right after you go public, <laughs> look a little uh, suspicious. But, you know, that's why we have to, we're in there for the long haul with these whistleblowers. It's it's not, um, you know, we're a nonprofit. So, uh, you know, I'm, we are lawyers, um, we are employment lawyers, and that is, you know, the nature of what we do. But the nature of our larger sort of one-stop shop for whistleblowing is that we're with you long after the litigation is over. And we're with you in supporting your advocacy thereafter, your activism, whatever you end up doing, or, or even staying in your position. Some people are, are committed to working to better the, the agencies or the, the uh, systems from within. That's beautiful. Um, but you know what? You need to have solidarity. You need to have the support, not only of legal counsel, which we are, but every whistleblower we get, we sort of shroud in, in, in a community of people who care. Um, not, not too long ago, we had our 10 year anniversary and, um, and at that conference, you could really see it, it, it truly does. It, it takes a lot of people supporting the assertions of these whistleblowers to give them the, the, the validity, I guess, you know, to add, to add to their validity, I guess. Um, one of the things that I, I routinely talk about is, you know, whistleblowers will blow the whistle. They'll speak truth to power. But a lot of times these other organizations come in and they video truth to power, right? They, they record truth to power. Mm-hmm. And that indicates our whistleblowers. Well, we need all, we need an army of, of people uh, willing to support these whistleblowers. And, and that's why it's not just litigation. It's not just legal representation. It's it's a long-term engagement with these folks and and supporting them as they go forward, trying to make the change that they they sought uh, in in the beginning by making the disclosures. Right. Um, I should say, you know, the, you know, since we've got a little bit of time, 
one of the things that uh, I really I I can't express enough. I, I just think it's it's always worth repeating. People think about whistleblowers, and sometimes they'll have thoughts like, "Oh, it must be some sort of like a a rat or a leak or something of that nature, mm-hmm. a troublemaker, right? Something like that." I I should mention that you know there was a, a study done, and well over uh, I think it was like eighty eight percent of all whistleblowers report internally before going public. And Anthony is not different. Anthony didn't just hear about Waterloo and pipe up or learn that uh, there was all these people that were opposing high-speed slaughter and decide to pipe up. No, I mean, he's he's been blowing the whistle internally. Like he has been raising concerns to his management, raising concerns to the USDA. It's only after they these whistleblowers fully exhaust all internal means of making the difference that do they seek legal counsel or make the decision to reach out to the media or Congress. Oh, very interesting. So now what what will be the next steps uh, for Anthony Vallone um, when it comes to processing his complaint? How will that unfold? Well, I mean, the, everything will 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 just unfold as it is, is with the disclosure. And um, the in a perfect scenario, he will be able to have, have spoken his truth without retaliation. The question becomes, you know, should retaliation occur? Uh, then what's the next step after that? And and that almost invariably requires some sort of litigation redress, right? I mean, because at that point, if there's retaliation, there's going to be harm to that individual uh, it, personnel. Uh, you know, there's going to be a prohibited personnel practice. So uh, cutting overtime or, um, you know, treating differently, giving bad, you know, giving bad positions or less desirable positions, just to name a few. But the biggest one, of course, is, is you know, termination. Right. Um, and, and very often whistleblowers will come to, to us after they've had that retaliation, after they've had that termination. But I think it's an important thing to mention you don't have to wait until you get retaliated against it. Probably a good idea if you're thinking about blowing a whistle, blowing the whistle to talk to a lawyer, um, because there are safer and better ways to blow the whistle, and and there are ways to do it and preserve your position. Sometimes, uh, not all the time, but often you can you can do it in a safer way to just you know mitigate again some of the the ramifications for truth telling you know, in a perfect world, there wouldn't be any retaliation for truth telling, but <laughs> I, I, I hate to say it. I, I think that you know, that laughter is all right. Like I, again, I, you know, we, we've had so many uh, people who, um, who come forward um, and they, you know, they really, they get, they, they get it handed to them. You know what I mean? They, they really suffer. Um, it can be, it can be ostracizing, you know, people not talking to you. You almost become like a persona non grata. You know, people laugh at you, call you names. I mean, it's very childish on some level, but then sometimes it can be downright deadly. Um, I, there was a whistleblower before she came to us. She had she had blown the whistle, and um, you know, uh, uh, people don't people don't think about this, but a lot of um, a lot of these slaughter plants, they're company towns. You kind That's of right. alluded to that, you know. So it's it's the only game in town. It's the biggest employer. And if you go messing around with somebody's employer, when that's the only employer in town, well, that whistleblower can can get a pretty big, you know, X on his or her back pretty quick. And um, I knew of a woman who um, uh, she blew the whistle and uh, it was on a slaughterhouse and um, they start they smashed in her, her mailbox. 
Uh, they sat out in front of her, you know, they drove up to her yard, you know, and threw beer cans in her yard, called her pig, all kinds of names. So, I mean, it can be everything from schoolyard bullying to real threats of violence. So it's not, it's not nothing. It's certainly right. nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, just for the fun of it, cause we only have a couple minutes left. Um, talk about how do you think the new administration is going to address some of these industrial excesses? I mean, you know, even though Obama managed with great difficulty to pass the food safety modernization act, otherwise known as FISMA, um, not a lot changed as far as I can tell. A lot of the measures that he signed into law somehow were never fully implemented. Um, so what should what do you think Biden's administration should focus on once he has, you know, kind of put out the current fires <laughs> that he has to deal with? I mean, is it like breaking up monopolies or pursuing more vigorous worker safety re- legislation or increasing wages and benefits? I mean, where where do you see this administration coming down when it comes to dealing with some of these egregious uh, and, as you pointed out, now brought out to light by via COVID, um, you know, some of these more egregious practices? Well, I, I think, you know, this is great that we're having this conversation about line speeds because, you know, busting the monopolies, probably not going to happen. I, I mean, maybe, I guess, but, you know, no one's anticipating that this Biden administration is going to just come out really heavy swinging. I don't think that's what the nation really wants. You know what I mean? I, I don't think that I don't think that's I don't think that that's what this election was about either. I don't and I don't I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one that that anticipates maybe not like a big axe, you know, or a heavy sledgehammer approach. But I think, again, this conversation is very germane to this 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 uh, administration because line speeds are something very much uh, they can they can work on. They can do a lot because that's that's from that's it that's that's USDA that's the executive right. branch. So it's not like you got to write a new law or anything. You need to. I'll tell you what he needs to do. Stop this crap with line speeds and beef right now. It's got to yeah. stop, and that's easy. You know, that's not that that's something you can do right away. Um, look, at, you know, stop the stop the poultry uh, poultry rule. Like, you know, start 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 keeping your promise to America's workers too. Um, you know, start start demanding that OSHA listen to these complaints and, you know, by God, do something about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are things that don't you don't have to have congressional consensus. You know what I mean? You don't you, these are just things that good regulatory practice put some put some law and order back in in into this agency start start getting these line speeds uh square those away stop it in beef entirely um and and there's room to to stop it in poultry as well and we don't know what we were supposed to learn um during the waiver time the waiver time that waiver period was, it was supposed to be an opportunity for us to learn more about, you know, worker injuries in, in, in with these high line speeds. Well, we we haven't gotten a full test of that. We don't really know because we haven't been running the line speeds because of COVID. So there's a lot there. It's tricky, but it's not impossible. And it's not beyond the scope of this election, if you know what I mean. It's not, you know, he's not Teddy Roosevelt here. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> right. It's just a matter of, of of 
putting some some order back into a very chaotic world that is 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 the meat industry in general, but specifically for those who work in slaughter plants, it's a dangerous place to work. And 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 our our country, we're we're better than that. We're better than that. We can do more for America's workers. God, I hope you're right. Um, and with that, I'm going to ask you to promote uh, the Food Integrity Campaign. Where can people learn more about what you're doing and uh, how they can support it? Check us out at foodwhistleblower.org. We've got lots of resources there for you, whether you're blowing the whistle yourself or want to help someone speak truth to power. Thank you so much, Amanda. Have a great holiday season. It's a joy and a delight as always. And we'll be talking again very soon, I have no doubt. Listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. And many thanks to my sponsor, uh, as always, for supporting Heritage Radio Network. See you next week, folks. Have a good one. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.